I'm not sure about you, but I'm one who really enjoys fine pieces of art. And you're thinking, are you kidding me? You're from Kentucky. What do you know, right? Uh, One of my favorite pieces of art are mosaics. Mosaics to me are just beautiful because what they are are these gatherings of broken pieces of glass. You will have these sharp pieces of glass that are rugged and gnarly in their designs and almost ugly in how they are as individual pieces. And yet, an artist will take these ugly, broken, sharp pieces of glass and then order them in such a way to make a beautiful mosaic. That is not unlike the Christian life. So much of what you and I experience as followers of Jesus, when we go through trials, when we go through suffering and we experience injustice, it feels like a sharp piece of glass. It's gnarly, it's ugly in how it looks, how it feels. And yet, the ultimate artist is ordering each piece for something bigger than we can see. And that is what Habakkuk is wrestling through in Habakkuk chapter 1. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, that's where we're going to be setting up camp this morning. I'm going to pull this thing out here. This thing's on wheels and it's hard to drive, but we're able to get it out here safely. In Habakkuk, last week we began our sermon series in this sermon series called uh, Good and Sovereign. I almost said on the move, y'all. <laughs> we're out of Mark, just so you know, all right? We're looking at Habakkuk. And so if you don't know where the book of Habakkuk is, do not worry. Go to your table of contents. You can go there. It's the 35th book of the Old Testament. It's, it's wedged right there in between Nahum and uh, Zephaniah. And we covered last week a Genesis through Habakkuk uh, overarching picture, uh, a storyline leading up to this great minor prophet. The last 12 books of the Old Testament are considered minor prophets, not minor in significance, but they're considered minor because they're smaller in length in comparison to Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And last week, we looked at the overarching picture, the story of Scripture, of the Old Testament, how it's moving somewhere, that indeed history has an arc, and it's pointing towards Jesus. It's bending towards Jesus. And as we saw last week of how God is at work in times of difficulty and struggle, hardship and uncertainty, well, what's happening in the book of Habakkuk is we find this prophet who is not speaking to the people on behalf of God, but he's speaking to God on behalf of the people. So to understand the background and context of Habakkuk, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel have broken. They have split apart after the leadership of King Solomon. Because of his wayward heart, because he married all these women who turned his heart away from the Lord, God brought division amongst his nation. Ten tribes went to the north, which is considered Israel, and then you have Judah that is down in the south. The northern kingdom of Israel is only ruled by evil kings. They never had a leader. They never had a king who appointed them to the Lord, who never pointed them to obedience to the scriptures. 
Eventually, in the year 722, God brings judgment upon Israel through the nation of Assyria. Assyria attacks and sacks the northern kingdom. The people are taken off into slavery and they never return. Well, about a hundred years later, Habakkuk is in the southern kingdom of Judah, which is being ruled by the evil king Jehoiakim. Now, if you're interested about Jehoiakim and his story and his poor leadership, you can go to 2 Kings, uh, chapters 23 and 24, where you can see Jehoiakim and how he was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a king who burned the word of God because it contradicted him. And so as this man, he was evil and did evil in the sight of the Lord, God is about to bring judgment. Well, as is often the case, the people followed in the footsteps of their leader. Without the fear of God, without reverence for his word, justice had disappeared from the land. Violence has, was widespread all across Judah. Wickedness was constant and it went unchecked. And Habakkuk is wondering why God does not act in the face of injustice. This is the issue he's wrestling through. As far as he could see, Judah's society was decaying. And instead of the righteous standing up and leading a path forward, evildoers, they have center stage and they're running the show. And so Habakkuk is voicing his complaint to God in Habakkuk chapter 1. Look at the text with me. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective. Injustice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. This is now the Lord's response to Habakkuk. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I'm doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Habakkuk is examining the condition of Judah and it weighs heavy on his heart. He saw violence and injustice, oppression, dishonesty, idolatry, corrupt leadership, and wickedness, and it burdened him. This morning, I want you to notice how Habakkuk responded to the wickedness in his land and how you and I can respond when we experience injustice. I want you to see first, when you face injustice, number one, lament with honest desperation. Lament with honest desperation. 
Habakkuk is looking around at the spiritual and moral condition of Judah, and he's bothered by the apparent apathy of God. He's praying and asking, God, where are you? God, why are you silent? How long, God, verse 2, must I call for help and you don't listen? Lord, I'm crying out to you, verse 2, about violence, and you do not save. He's wondering why God is not responding to the evil in the land. Have you ever prayed and felt like your prayers didn't get past the ceiling? Are you, you kind of like me, where sometimes where you pray and it just feels like God is not listening? Well, we're in good company. Because that's where the prophet Habakkuk is. Here he is crying out to God, saying, God, do you not care? Or God, are you not listening God, do you, are you not bending your ear towards me? Here's a man who is crying out to God, and he seems like God's being apathetic. He's bothered by what he perceives as God's tolerance for evil. Look at verse 3. He asks, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Okay, so Kenneth, how bad was it? Was it really as bad? Isn't Habakkuk being dramatic? Isn't he kind of being a little prima donna here? Listen to what the Lord accuses his people of in Jeremiah twenty two seventeen. He says, but you have eyes and a heart for nothing except your own dishonest prophet. Shedding innocent blood and committing extortion and oppression. You see, evil was so prevalent in the land that the rich were increasing their bank accounts off the poor. Con artists were stealing from the innocents. Evil went unpunished by those who had the authority to discipline it. The innocent were being murdered for no reason at all. And Habakkuk is crying out in honest desperation over what appears is God's absence in the midst of such injustice. It would kind of be like Gotham City throwing up the bat signal while Batman is in the bat cave watching soap operas and eating bonbons. Like, God, where are you? Why are you not responding? He's wondering aloud in prayer, verses one through four, God, where are you? And Habakkuk is lamenting not only the spiritual and moral condition of his nation, but his people, he's lamenting God's delayed justice. But you see, y'all, sometimes God's justice is hidden. It's hard to see from our limited perspective of what God is doing. You and I are kind of like horses with blinders on. We can't see the big picture. We can't see all that God is doing. And yet the Lord is working throughout human history and he's ordaining events with a bigger plan in view. And though God may allow, he may permit evil to pre prevail for a season, God actually uses the, the actions of the wicked to accomplish his greater purposes. It reminds me of the book of Esther, where we see God, it seems like he is allowing evil Haman to prosper. Here is this man who's seeking to exterminate the Jews. Here is a man who's trying to take down an entire race of people. And what is God doing? He permits evil to prevail for a season. But eventually God raises up and he humbles the proud. He works for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. As you and I look across the landscape of the world and even our own lives, we may be walking through seasons of suffering. We may experience injustice where it seems like the wicked are allowed to prevail. 
And we may be like Habakkuk in verses 1 through 4. We're like, God, where are you? Why are you silent? Why are you not responding? And yet the Lord is permitting evil to remain for a season. But its days are numbered. For there's coming a day, ultimately, in the overarching history of the world in which God will end all evil. Indeed, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will burn forever. There's coming a day in which God will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He is a faithful God who is watching and working even through the actions of the wicked so that he might work for the good of his people and for the fame of his name. But you see, when you walk through these seasons of injustice, it hurts. And lamenting is is the right, it's the God-honoring response when the world is not working the way that God designed. When it appears like evil has victory, when the wicked prosper, when the innocent suffer, it is the good and right response to declare from your heart, God, it's not supposed to be this way. This is not right. That's the good and right response. As you approach the Lord with humility, with understanding that he is God and you are not, but like Job, we lament over the condition that we find ourselves in. King David, he did this. In Psalm 13, he cried out, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? And Habakkuk is crying out, God, are you not sovereign? Won't you stop this? God, are you not good and willing to hold the wicked accountable? And what Habakkuk is struggling with, just like Job, is God's character does not seem to be matching his experience. But here's the reality, y'all. This is where you and I need to get. As followers of Jesus, it's this. Believers must interpret what we see, feel, and experience in light of God's character, not the other way around. Believers must interpret what we see, feel, and experience in light of God's character, not the other way around. Sadly, sadly, there are far too many Christ followers who do the opposite. They assume based upon what they see, based upon what they feel, based upon what they experience, that God hates them, or God is against them, or God is apathetic. The person that you trust stabs you in the back and you're wondering if God loves you. Someone you love dies, and you're asking, God, are you not faithful? What is your plan? You can't seem to get pregnant while everybody else does. You're saying, God, where are you in this? Why are all the people who seem to do evil? They can get pregnant, but I can't. You work hard, but people around you are cheating and lying and working their way to the top, and they get promoted while you stay right where you're at. And you're wondering, God, do you even care? Beloved, when you experience injustice, do not assume God does not care. When evil people seem to prosper, do not assume that God is indifferent. When someone hurts you, do not assume God hates you. You see, the enemy, Satan, is a liar. And he will lie to you and seek to manipulate you, to lead you to believe something about God that is not true. Satan hates God, and he will feed you lies to make you think wrong thoughts about God. 
This is why you and I need our Bibles. We must allow the truth of Scripture to, allow, to renew our minds. We allow the Word of God to govern our thinking so that even when we don't feel like things are right, when we experience injustice, we don't presume something about God that is not true. We allow the word of God to govern our thinking and our responding. And even in the midst of our pain, and you say, God, this hurts. And I, I hate this, Lord. This is so hard. Yet I trust you. I trust who you are. You're faithful. You're strong. You're good, you're good and sovereign. And so, Lord, in the midst of this hardship, I'm leaning upon you. Beloved, I want you to hear me. God is love. And he loves you. If you are in Christ, God is not mad at you. He's not out to get you. He doesn't walk around constantly kicking rocks, disappointed in your decisions. He is a God who cares so deeply for you. And he wants what's best for you. Even in the midst of difficulty, hardship and injustice that you experience. He is faithful and he is working in ways that you cannot see or understand. See, your hardship has been ordered by divine love. And I understand the weight of that sentence that I just said. Your hardship has been ordered by divine love. It may not feel like love right now. It may feel like God is against you. Beloved, he's not. He's not against you. He's gone on record through his son to say, I'm not against you. I'm for you. But as a parent who knows more than what the child can see or understand, I'm doing something that you're not going not to get right now. And in fact, you may not ever understand until you get to glory. But I want you to know I'm still working and I'm still with you. And as you go through this hardship, I want you to know I'm not going to leave you for a second. I'm with you every step of the way. You see, he is with you, he's for you, and he is working in, in your suffering. He is working. For God does not sit back and wish us luck when we go through suffering. No, we have a Savior who knows the sting of betrayal. He knows the pain of rejection. Jesus is familiar with grief. Jesus is acquainted with suffering. He knows what it's like to lose someone whom you love. Jesus felt excruciating physical pain. He has gone through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus has gone through suffering and by his grace and for his glory, he has come out the other side as the victorious king. Indeed, Jesus endured the worst injustice ever committed at the cross. And yet he came out of the tomb victorious and triumphant over all of his enemies. And Jesus, through his gospel, has secured a future day in which there is no more violence, no more injustice, no more evil, no more wickedness, no more conflict, no more strife, no more suffering, no more betrayal, no more divorce, no more grief, no more pain, and even no more death. That's been secured. That's your future. That is what's coming for those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're walking through hardship right now, there's coming a day in which you will suffer no more. 
This is good news for us as followers of Jesus. What a Savior. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of you and I giving him our best and giving him our all, all because of what he has secured through his death and resurrection. That there's a future for us. No more hardship or pain. No more physical suffering. That's what's coming for us. And so we cling tight to Jesus. We hold fast to his promises so that when we experience injustice, when we go through hardship, we can laugh at the days to come, afraid of nothing, Psalm 112. We're trusting in the one who holds our future, the one who decides our day of birth and our day of death, and who is sovereign over everything in between and who will keep us until the end of the age. This is who we are trusting and following after. But for now, when you go through hardship and suffering, when you experience injustice, it's good and right to lament. When you hurt, cry out to the one who hears you both night and day. When you suffer in the dust, call out to the one who made the earth. When you see injustice, Pray to the one who promises a day that's coming where justice will flow like streams of water. Cry out to Jesus. He will hear you and he will draw near to you. I remember 11 years ago, Christy and I went through a very difficult season in our marriage. Having three children, uh, I'm sorry, four children, three and under, and having a lot of difficulty and stress in our life, not only because of children, but foolish decisions of people around us that we couldn't control. And I, gosh, I remember sitting on a couch one night. Finally, all four kids were asleep. We're both exhausted. And I turned to her and I said, I love you and I'm not going anywhere, but I don't feel love for you. And she laughed. And she said, I feel the exact same way. And we both thought, well, we can only go up from here. And it was through that hard season that we clung fast to Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap shouts of joy. As we walked through a very dark and difficult and painful season where our tears were our food, where we cried ourselves to sleep, where we felt incredible frustration over the foolish decisions of others that affected us, we were reminded there's coming a day in which we're going to cry no more. Jesus will hold us fast. He's going to keep us until that last day. And can I celebrate God's kindness and faithfulness? The Lord has brought healing to our marriage. And did you know, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, one of God's means of bringing healing to our marriage was this church. The way that you have loved us and encouraged us for the last 10 years, the way that you pray for us, you are evidence of God's grace in our life. One of the millions of reasons I think we're the best church in the whole wide world is because of the way that you love your pastor and the way you love my family. We've been through some really dark seasons, and God has been faithful. We have sowed in many, many tears, but God, by his grace, has brought great shouts of joy. But ultimately, we know where history is going. That as we 
mourn for the night. We know that joy is coming in the morning. We know there's coming a day in which the eastern sky is going to split. And the Lord Jesus himself will return and rescue his bride and call us home in which we will weep no more. We will rejoice as the redeemed. We will celebrate the blood of the lamb that was shed for us. We will be with all who have trusted in Christ throughout the ages and we're going to bask in the glory of our king. This is what's coming for us. So as you weep, as you lament, do so with understanding. We're going to reap shouts of joy. So we can walk through pain knowing that the Lord is tenderly comforting us and reminding us, I got this. I'm working. You don't see it. Trust me. I called an audible, uh, Caleb, who, who led us in worship this morning, I called an audible this week as I was walking through this text. And I said, man, we've got to sing Waymaker. Because even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. And God is working in you right now. You may not feel it. You may not see it. Oh, beloved, he's working. So you can lament in honest desperation. But secondly, when injustice and suffering comes our way, number two, watch God work in unexpected ways. In verses 5 through 11, God responds to Habakkuk's prayer. And the Lord tells him that he's indeed going to punish Judah for her disobedience. And he's going to do it in an unexpected way. The Lord says, look at verse 5. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Oh, I love verse 5. Oh, this is so good. The Lord's like, I'm about to shock you, Habakkuk. Get ready, son. I got something I got to tell you. I want you to notice a couple of things that are just super encouraging. I love about verse 5. Number one, I put this in your notes. The Lord always listens to his people pray. I love this. You're in verse 5. The Lord is fully aware of the prayers upon Habakkuk's lips. And beloved, the Lord is fully aware of the prayers upon your lips. When you pray in Jesus' name, when you seek the Lord's face, he listens to you. And that phrase, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just a little tagline. We do it because it's only through Jesus that we have access to the Father. We come to Jesus, we go to God the Father through Jesus the Son. And so we pray in Jesus' name because it's through Christ, God hears us. Tim Keller says it so well. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. You can approach the king at 3 a.m. And he is not bothered, not frustrated. He is the God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. And he invites you to seek his face in prayer. As a father delights to hear his children speak to him, so our heavenly father delights to call upon his name. In 1 John 5, 14 says, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God never ignores his children. God is never too busy for you. God is never confused by your ramblings. There was a, yesterday a family in our church was going through a very difficult trial. And last night I was on the phone with them and we took time to pray together. 
And my prayer was this, Lord, Romans 8. I don't know what to say right now. But your spirit, he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And so, Lord, I'm just going to groan. I want to hurt with this family. And I don't know what to say, but God, I'm crying out to you and asking for you to work in their life. And the Lord loves when we cry out to him. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when we just say words that don't even make sense. And even when we say things with bad theology, he still listens. He's like, I understand. I'm drawing near. I'm listening to you. You're my child. I love to hear you pray. He's always gracious, always eager, always wise, always loving, always patient, and answers your prayers by what he knows is best. He answers our prayers in such a way that as if we had prayed him in the way that we should have in the first place. You see, the Lord always listens to you pray, beloved. But secondly, the Lord always responds to his people's prayers. The Lord always responds to his people's prayers. Verse 5, not only does the Lord listen to his people, he responds when you pray, God acts. Now sometimes when you pray, the Lord will say yes. And sometimes when you pray, the Lord will say no. And sometimes when you pray, the Lord will say wait. But the Lord still listens and he still responds. That doesn't mean the Lord will respond in the way that you want him to. In fact, that's what I kind of love about Habakkuk here in chapter 1. is that he's praying to the Lord about everything happening around him. God doesn't answer his prayer the way he wants him to. I'm like, well, at least a prophet. I, I'm kind of like him. I pray for lots of things, and the Lord says, no, I'm going to do something else. That's what he's doing here in Habakkuk. He's like, I'm going to do something totally different. And yet, did you notice verse 5? I'm already doing something. The Lord's telling Habakkuk, I'm already working. God is already answering Habakkuk's prayer before he even asks. And God is at work before the request even leaves Habakkuk's lips. And it turns out the Lord did see all of the evil that his people were doing. He saw, verse 2, their violence. He saw, verse 3, their iniquity. He knew of their failure, verse 4, to obey the law of God. And so God would punish Judah at the hands of, verse 6, the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, a.k.a. the Babylonians. What's the big deal about the Babylonians? Well, Babylon was the new superpower of the ancient Near East. And God is telling Habakkuk that the answer to his prayer regarding the violence of Judah is more violence from an up-and-coming world power, Babylon. Well, this shocked Habakkuk that God would use such a wicked, militaristic, and violent people. God, they're worse than Judah. God, you're going to take a nation who's pagan and they worship false gods and you're going to use them? They're worse than we are. And the Lord's like, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll get there next week and the week after how the Lord deals in later chapter one and chapter two of the Lord. He knows what's going to go on. And he says, listen, I'll, I'll hold Babylon accountable. Don't, don't you worry about Habakkuk. But I want you to know I'm still working in a way that you don't understand. I'm up to a bigger picture than what you can see. But notice how the Lord himself describes these Babylonians in verses six and following. God describes them as bitter and swift, verse six. Fierce and terrifying, verse 7. 
arrogantly viewing themselves as God. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. They're the most dangerous and unstoppable army in the world, and they know it. They have the best military transport. They're fast and ferocious. With verse 8, horses faster than leopards. They're more ferocious than wolves in the middle of the night. Their cavalry gallops like swooping uh, eagles that are flying to devour their prey. These vigilantes come to do violence. They, verse 9, gather prisoners like sand. The size of their military is vast. They have no fear of monarchs, no fear of governments or kings. They laugh at rulers, verse 10. They chuckle at fortresses and just build ramps over top of them. They sweep across the land like the wind. They come flying in, utterly dominate a people, flex on them, verse 10, because, I'm sorry, verse 11, their strength is their God. And they ride on to conquer someone else. So why is God raising up these bloodthirsty vigilantes? It's because God's people have abandoned their covenant with the Lord. They have prostituted themselves with other gods. In Jeremiah 11, listen to what the Lord says. He says, I'm about to bring on Judah disaster that they cannot escape. They will cry out to me, but I will not hear them. Then the cities of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods they have been burning incense to. But they certainly will not save them in the time of disaster. Your gods are indeed as numerous as your cities, Judah. And the altars you've set up to shame, altars to burn incense to Baal, as numerous as the streets of Jerusalem. And God's telling Habakkuk, hold on to your hat, young man. I'm raising up wicked Babylon to punish my people. And as astounding and shocking as it was that God would raise up wicked Babylon to punish God's people, God would would one day permit and ordain a wicked nation to crush his own son. That God would raise up Rome to crucify Jesus on the cross. And through this wicked act, God would do something bigger than people could see. For it was through this wicked act that God would accomplish our salvation. That it is even through the actions of the wicked, as Habakkuk is scratching his head, saying, what are you doing, God? You're raising them up? God is pointing forward to a future nation that would rise up and punish his own son. And out of love for the world, they would be the instruments through which they would provide salvation to the nations. That all who turn from sin and trust in Christ will be received by God. That it's through the sovereign act of God to use Rome as puppets to accomplish his greater purposes, the salvation of the nations that you might come into a right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God was up to something bigger than the people could see. And he's displaying his power through injustice of the wicked to display his power and glory and provide salvation. You see, God loves you so much that he's made a way through the suffering of his son on the cross to bring you to himself. That all who turn from sin and trust in him by faith will be received by God. 
You become adopted into his family. You can sing with all of the redeemed, I am a child of God. Yes, I am. All because of what God's done for you in the gospel. Believe in Christ. Jesus is mighty to save. You may be thinking, but man, my, my past is so messed up. I've got so many sins in my life where your sin is great. Jesus' grace is greater all the more. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He will receive you and he will change your heart and he will make you his own. And when you go through hardship, when you go through injustice, when you experience suffering, you can declare this prayer, which is your impact point, and it's this. When you cannot trace God's hand, trust his heart. You can imagine the disciples on that Friday night. The door is locked, cowering in fear. This Savior, whom they've left everything to follow, is dead. God, where are you? What are you doing? God was up to something bigger than they could see. Maybe you're going through a hardship right now. You're experiencing injustice. Maybe you're going through a trial. And you're wondering in the deep caverns of your heart, God, where are you? What are you doing? I don't understand. Beloved, God is up to something bigger than you can see. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. What you may be experiencing right now is sharp and painful and gnarly and ugly like a piece of glass. But the ultimate artist, the one who is good and sovereign, is taking this broken piece of glass and he is ordering it into a beautiful mosaic. A tapestry that at the end of the age will be the most beautiful and glorious and providentially designed work of God. Where we're going to look upon all that he has done and his good works and say, he is good. And he is sovereign. And he is beautiful. And he has worked in my pain for his glory the good of the nations and the good of me. You know this is true. And you can trust it because of the cross and the empty tomb.